Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to Forgotten Classics. I'm Julie, and this is episode 287, where we are about two-thirds of the way through The White Mall by Frank L. Packard, an exciting adventure story from the early 1920s set in the seamy part of New York City. But before we go on with that, let's have the podcast highlight. We are looking at history this week, the giants of history specifically. This is a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at interesting figures from, as they say, the cradle to the grave. So each episode is focused on the stories that tell us a lot about who these people are. Their goal is to entertain as well as to inform and inspire. And I think we can agree that the first subject, Teddy Roosevelt, is definitely worth hearing stories about. My gosh, that man had a colorful life. They did 10 episodes on him, and it was barely enough to contain everything. (laughs) They would then have gone on after Teddy Roosevelt to talk about Pablo Picasso in a standalone episode, King Louis XVI, in a standalone episode also. And now they have begun one that I've really been excited about, Leonardo da Vinci, because I don't know much about his life. We've all seen the famous works of art, but not the details about his life. So um, they've only done two of those right now, so I'm very excited about listening to those. I've really enjoyed these. Although it's entertainingly told, it's a great blend of the personal and the scripted. I feel it has to be scripted, but it doesn't sound really scripted and it's not too casual. It's just really well done. Quite often history is told to us as event, 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 event. Oh, here are some important people that contributed to these events here or there. I've always been much more a fan of the great man of history theory, which is that the great men help make history happen. These guys aren't necessarily saying that specifically, but what is happening at this podcast is that by focusing on all the events and the character of these people, you get to see specifically what they did, and you can get a little bit more to think about what would happen if those people weren't there for those events. So that's why I like it. Give it a try. Now we left... Poor Rhoda Gray. We leave her every time in a cliffhanger, but to be fair, that is how the book's written. (laughs) She is getting ready to open the door and see the dangler's hideaway, his lair, the place that she can tell the police about if we're lucky. I can't wait. So let's dive in and I'll meet you on the other side. The White Mall by Frank L. Packard Chapter 15 In the Council Chamber The man with the withered hand had passed through into the other room. She heard them talking together as she followed. She forced herself to walk with as nearly a leisurely defiant air as she could. The last time she had been with Dangler, as Gypsy Nan, she had, in self-protection, forbidding intimacy, played up what he called her grouch at his neglect of her. She paused in the doorway. 
halfway across the room at the table dangler's gaunt swarthy face showed under the rays of a shaded oil lamp behind her spectacles she met his small black ferret eyes steadily hello bertha he called out cheerily how's the old girl tonight he rose from his seat and came toward her and how's the cold rhoda gray scowled at him worse she said curtly and hoarsely and a lot you care I could have died in that hole for all you knew. She pushed him irritably away as he came near her. Yes, that's what I said. You needn't start any cooing game now. Get down to cases. She jerked her hand toward the twisted figure that had slouched into a chair beside the table. He says you've got it doped out to pull something that will let me out of this gypsy nan stunt. Another bubble, I suppose. She shrugged her shoulders, glanced around her, and, locating a chair, not too near the table, seated herself indifferently. "'I'm getting sick of bubbles,' she announced, insolently. "'What's this one?' He stood there for a moment, biting at his lips, hesitant between anger and tolerant amusement, and then, the latter evidently gaining ascendancy, he too shrugged his shoulders and laughed and returned to his chair. "'You're a rare one, Bertha,' he said coolly. I thought you'd be wild with delight. I guess you're sick, all right, because you're usually pretty sensible. I've tried to tell you that it wasn't my fault I couldn't go near you, and that I had to keep away from— What's the use of going over all that again? she interrupted tartly. I guess I— Oh, all right, said Dangler hurriedly. Don't start a row. After tonight I've an idea you'll be sweet enough to your husband, and I'm willing to wait. Mattie maybe hasn't told you the whole of it. Mattie— so that was the deformed creature's name. She glanced at him. He was grinning broadly. A family squabble seemed to afford him amusement. Her eyes shifted and made a circuit of the room. It was poverty-stricken in appearance, bare-floored, with the scantiest and cheapest of furnishings, its only window tightly shuttered. "'Maybe not,' she said carelessly. "'Well, then, listen, Bertha,' Dangler's voice was lowered earnestly. We've uncovered the nabob's stuff. Do you get me? Every last one of the sparklers. Rhoda Gray's eyes went back to the deformed creature at Dangler's side, as the man laughed out abruptly. Yes, grinned Mattie Dangler, and they weren't in the empty money belt that you beat it with, like a scared cat after croaking Deemer. How queer and dim the light seemed to go suddenly, or was it a blur before her own eyes? She said nothing. Her mind seemed to be groping its way out of the darkness towards some faint gleam of light showing in the far distance. She heard Dangler order his brother savagely to hold his tongue. That was curious, too, because she was grateful for the man's jibe. Gypsy Nan, in her proper person, had murdered a man named Deemer in an effort to secure— Dangler's voice came again. "'Well, tonight we'll get that stuff. All of it. It's worth a cool half-million.' and tonight we'll get Mr. House Detective Clorin for keeps. Bump him off. That cleans everything up. How does that strike you, Bertha? Rhoda Gray's hands under her shawl locked tightly together. Her premonition had not betrayed her. She was face to face tonight with the beginning of the end. It sounds fine, she said derisively. Dangler's eyes narrowed for an instant, and then he laughed. You're a rare one, Bertha, he ejaculated again. "'You don't seem to put much stock in your husband lately.' "'Why should I?' she inquired imperturbably. "'Things have been breaking fine, haven't they? "'Only not for us.' She cleared her throat, as though it were an effort to talk. 
I'm not going crazy with joy till I've been shown. Dangler leaned suddenly over the table. Well, come and look at the cards, then, he said impressively. Pull your chair up to the table, and I'll tell you. Rhoda Gray tilted her chair instead, nonchalantly back against the wall. It was quite light enough where she was. I can hear you from here, she said coolly. I'm not deaf, and I guess Mattie's suite is safe enough so that you won't have to whisper all the time. The deformed creature at the table chortled again. Dangler scowled. Damn you, Bertha, he flung out savagely. I could wring that neck of yours sometimes, and— I know you could, Pierre, she interposed sweetly. That's what I like about you. You're so considerate of me. But suppose you get down to cases. What's the story about those sparklers? And what's the game that's going to let me shed this gypsy nan stuff for keeps? I'll tell her, Pierre, grinned the deformed one. It'll keep you two from spitting at one another. And neither of you have got all night to stick around here. He swung his withered hand suddenly across the table, and as suddenly all facetiousness was gone from his voice and manner. Say, you listen hard, Bertha. What Pierre's telling you is straight. You and him can kiss and make up tomorrow, or the next day, or whenever you damn well please. But tonight there ain't any more time for scrapping. Now listen. I handed you a rap about beating it with the empty money belt the night you croaked Deemer with an overdose of knockout drops in the private room up at the Hotel Marwitz. But you forget that. I ain't starting any argument about that. None of us blames you. We thought the stuff was in the belt, too. And none of us blames you for making a mistake, and going too strong with the drops, either. Anybody might do that. And I'll say now that I take my hat off to you for the way you locked Clorin into the room with the dead man, and made your escape when Clorin had you dead to rights for the murder. And I'll say, too, that the way you've played Gypsy Nan, and saved your skin, and ours, too, is as slick a piece of work as has ever been pulled in the underworld. That puts you straight, you and me, don't it, Bertha? Rhoda Gray blinked at the man through her spectacles. Her brain was whirling in a mad turmoil. I always liked you, Mattie, she whispered softly. Dangler was lolling back in his chair, blowing smoke rings into the air. She caught his eyes fixed quizzically upon her. "'Go on, Mattie,' he prompted. "'You'll have her in a good humor if you're not careful.' We were playing more or less blind after that. The withered hand traced an aimless pattern on the table with its crooked and half-closed fingers, and the man's face was puckered into a shrewd, reminiscent scowl. The papers couldn't get a lead on the motive for the murder, and the police weren't talking for publication. Not a word about the Rajah's jewels. Washington saw to that— a young potentate's son, practically a guest of the country, touring about in a special for the sake of his education, and dashed near ending it in the river out west if it hadn't been for the rescue you know about, wouldn't look well in print, so there wasn't anything said about the slather of gems that was a reward of heroism from a grateful nabob, and we didn't get any help that way. All we knew was that Deemer came east with the jewels, presumably to cash in on them, and it looked as though Deemer were pretty clever— that he wore the money-belt for a stall, and that he had the sparklers safe somewhere else all the time. And I guess we all got to figuring it that way, because the fact that nothing was said about the theft was strictly along the lines the police were working anyway, and was a toss-up that they hadn't found the stuff among his effects. Get me? Get him? This wasn't real, was it? This room here? Those two figures sitting there under the shaded lamp? Something cold, an icy grip, seemed to seize at her heart, as in a surge there swept upon her the full appreciation of her peril through these confidences to which she was listening. 
a word in act some slightest thing might so easily betray her and then her fingers under the shawl and inside the wide pocket of her greasy skirt clutched at her revolver thank god for that it would at least be merciful she nodded her head mechanically but the police didn't find the jewels because they weren't there to be found somebody else got in ahead of us pinched em understand maybe only a few hours before you got in your last play and from the way you say deemer acted before he was wise to the fact he'd been robbed rhoda gray let her chair come sharply down to the floor she must play her role of bertha now as she never had before here was a question that she could not only ask with safety but one that was obviously expected who was it she demanded breathlessly she's coming to life murmured dangler through a haze of cigarette smoke i thought you'd wake up after a while bertha this is the big night old girl as you'll find out before we're through who was it she repeated with well simulated impatience i guess she'll listen to me now said dangler with a little chuckle don't overtax yourself any more mattie i'll tell you bertha and it will perhaps make you feel better to know that it took the slickest dip new york ever knew to beat you to the tape it was angel jack alias the gimp how do you know rhoda gray demanded because said dangler and lighted another cigarette he died yesterday afternoon in sing sing she could afford to show her frank bewilderment her brows knitted into furrows as she stared at dangler you you mean he confessed she said the angel never dangler laughed grimly and shook his head nothing like that it was a question of playing one fence against another you know that witzer who's handled all our jewelry for us has been on the lookout for any stones that might have come from that collection well this afternoon he passed the word to me that he had been offered the finest unset emerald he'd ever seen and that it came to him through old jake lurtz's runner a very innocent young man who's known to the trade as the crab dangler paused and laughed again unconsciously rhoda gray drew her jaw a little closer about her shoulders it seemed to bring a chill into the room that laugh once before on another night dangler had laughed and with his parted lips she had likened him to a beast showing its fangs he looked it now more than ever for all his ease of voice and manner he was in deadly earnest and if there was merriment in his laugh it but seemed to enhance the menace and the promise of unholy purpose that lurked in the cold glitter of his small black eyes it didn't take long to get hold of the crab dangler was rubbing his hands together softly and the emerald with him we got him where we could put the screws on him without arousing the neighborhood another murder i suppose rhoda gray flung out the words crossly oh no dangler said pleasantly he squealed before it came to that he's none the worse for wear and he'll be turned loose in another hour or so as soon as we get through old jake lurtz's he's no more good to us he came across all right after he was properly frightened he's been with old jake as a sort of familiar for the last six years and he'd have sold his soul he was so scared the withered hand on the table twitched the deformed creature's face twisted into a grimace and the man was chuckling with unhallowed mirth as though unable to contain himself at presumably the recollection of the scene which he had witnessed himself he was down on his knees and clawing out with his hands for mercy and he squealed like a rat it's the sixth panel in the bedroom upstairs he says it's all there 
but for God's sake don't tell Jake I told. It's the sixth panel. Press the knot in the sixth panel that— He stopped abruptly. Dangler had pulled out his watch, and with exaggerated patience was circling the crystal with his thumb. Are you all through, Maddie? he inquired monotonously. I think you said something a little while ago about wasting time. Bertha's looking bored, and besides, she's got a little job of her own on for tonight. He jerked his watch back into his pocket and turned to Rhoda Gray again. The only one who knew all the details, Angel Jack, and he'll never tell now because he's dead. Whether he came down from the west with Deemer or not, or how he got wise to the stones, I don't know. But he got the stones all right. And then he tumbled to the fact that the police were pushing him hard for another job he was wanted for, and he had to get those stones out of sight in a hurry. He made a package of them and slipped them to old Lurtz, who had always done his business for him, to keep for him, and before he could duck, the bulls had him for that other job. Angel Jack went up the river. See? Old Jake didn't know what was in that package, but he knew better than to monkey with it, because he always thought something of his own skin. He knew Angel Jack, and he knew what would happen if he didn't have that package ready to hand back the day Angel Jack got out of Sing Sing. Understand? And yesterday Angel Jack died, without a will, and old Jake appointed himself sole executor, without bonds. He opened that package, figured he'd begin turning it into money, and that's how we get our own back again. Old Jake will get a fake message tonight, calling him out of the house on an errand uptown and about ten o'clock Pinky Bon and the Pug will pay a visit there in his absence, and, well, it looks good, don't it, Bertha? After two years? Rhoda Gray was crouched down in her chair. She shrugged her shoulders now, and infused a sullen note into her voice. Yes, it's fine, she sniffed. I'll be rolling in wealth in my garret, which will do me a lot of good. That doesn't separate me from these rags and the hell I've lived, does it? After two years? "'I'm coming to that,' said Dangler, with a short, grating laugh. "'We've as good as got the stones now, and we're going through tonight for a clean-up of all that old mess. "'We staked the whole thing. Get me, Bertha? The whole thing. "'I'm showing my hand for the first time. "'Clorin's the man that's making you wear those clothes. "'Clorin's the only one who could go into the witness-box and swear that you were the woman who murdered Deemer.' and Clorin's the man who has been working his head off for two years to find you. We've tried a dozen times to bump him off in a way that would make his death appear to be purely an accident, and we didn't get away with it. But we can afford to leave the accident out of it tonight and go through for keeps, and that's what we're going to do. And once he's out of the way, by midnight, you can heave Gypsy Nan into the discard. It seemed to Rhoda Gray that horror had suddenly taken a numbing hold on her sensibilities. Dangler was talking about murdering some man, wasn't he, so that she could resume again the personality of a woman who was dead. Hysterical laughter rose to her lips. It was only by a frantic effort of will that she controlled herself. She seemed to speak involuntarily, doubtful almost that it was her own voice she heard. "'I'm listening,' she said, "'but I wouldn't be too sure. Clorin's a wary bird, and there's the white mall.' She caught her breath. What suicidal inspiration had prompted her to say that? Had what she been listening to here, the horror of it, indeed turned her brain, and robbed her of her wits to the extent that she should invite exposure? Dangler's face had gone a mottled purple. The misshapen thing at Dangler's side was leering at her most curiously. 
It was a moment before Dangler spoke, and then his hand, clenched until the white of the knuckles showed, pounded upon the table to punctuate his words. "'Not to-night,' he rasped out with an oath. "'There's not a chance that she's in on this to-night, the she-devil. But she's next. With this cleaned up, she's next. If it takes the last dollar of to-night's haul and five years to do it, I'll get her and get—' "'Sure,' mumbled Rhoda Gray hurriedly. "'But you needn't get excited.' I was only thinking of her because she's queerest till I've got my fingers crossed, that's all. Go on about Clorin. Dangler's composure did not return on the instant. He gnawed at his lips for a moment before he spoke. All right, he jerked out finally. Let it go at that. I told you the other night in the garret that things were beginning to break our way, and that you wouldn't have to stay there much longer, but I didn't tell you why or how. You wouldn't give me a chance. I'll tell you now and it's the main reason why I've kept away from you lately. I couldn't take a chance of Clorin getting wise to that Garrett and Gypsy Nan. He grinned suddenly. I've been cultivating Clorin myself for the last two weeks. We're quite pals. I'm playing for luck every time. When the jewels showed up today, I figured that tonight's the night. See? Clorin and I are going to supper together at the Silver Sphinx at about eleven o'clock and this is where you show up and shed the Gypsy Nan stuff and show up as your sweet self. Clorin'll be glad to meet you. She stared at him in genuine perplexity and amazement. Show myself to Clorin? she ejaculated heavily. I don't get you. You will in a minute, said Dangler softly. You're the bait, see? Clorin and I will be at supper and watching the fox-trotters. You blow in and show yourself. I don't need to tell you how. You're clever enough at that sort of thing yourself. And the minute he recognizes you as the woman he's been looking for that murdered Deemer, you pretend to recognize him for the first time, too, and then you beat it like you had the scare of your life for the door. He'll follow you on the jump. I don't know what it's all about, and I sit tight, and that lets me out. And now get this. There'll be two taxicabs outside. If there's more than two, it's the first two I'm talking about. You jump in the one at the head of the line. Clorin won't need an invitation to grab the second one and follow you. That's all. It's the last ride he'll take. It'll be our boys, and not chauffeurs who'll be driving those cars tonight, and they've got their orders where to go. Clorin won't come back. Understand, Bertha? There was only one answer to make, only one answer that she dared make. She made it mechanically, though her brain reeled. A man named Clorin was to be murdered, and she was to show herself as this, this Bertha, and— Yes, she said. Good, said Dangler. He pulled out his watch again. All right, then. We've been here long enough, he rose briskly. It's time to make a move. You hop back to the garret and get rid of that fancy dress. I've got to meet Clorin uptown first. Come on, Maddie, let us out. The place stifled her. She got up and moved quickly through the intervening room. She heard Dangler and his crippled brother talking earnestly together as they followed her. And then the cripple brushed past her in the darkness and opened the front door, and Dangler had drawn her to him in a quick embrace. She did not struggle. She dared not. Her heart seemed to stand still. Dangler was whispering in her ear. I promised I'd make it up to you, Bertha, old girl. You'll see, after tonight. We'll have another honeymoon. You go on ahead now. I can't be seen with Gypsy Nan. And don't be late. 
the silver sphinx at eleven. She ran out on the street. Her fingers mechanically clutched at her shawl to loosen it around her throat. It seemed as though she were choking, that she could not breathe. The man's touch upon her had seemed like a contact with some foul and loathsome thing, the scene in that back room there like some nightmare of horror from which she could not awake. Chapter 16 The Secret Panel Rhoda Gray hurried onward, back toward the garret, her mind in riot and dismay. It was not only the beginning of the end, it was very near the end. What was she to do? The Silver Sphinx, at eleven. That was the end, after eleven, wasn't it? She could impersonate Gypsy Nan. She could not, if she would, impersonate the woman who was dead. And then, too, there were the stolen jewels at old Jake Lurtz's. She could not turn to the police for help there, because then the pug might fall into their hands, and, and the pug was the adventurer. And then a sort of fatalistic calm fell upon her. If the masquerade was over, if the end had come, there remained only one thing for her to do. There were no risks too desperate to take now. It was she who must strike, and strike first. Those jewels in old Lurtz's bedroom became suddenly vital to her. They were tangible evidence. With those jewels in her possession, she should be able to force Dangler to his knees. She could get them, before Pinky Bon and the pug, if she hurried. Afterward, she would know where to find Dangler, at the Silver Sphinx. Nothing would happen to Clorin, because, through her failure to cooperate, the plan would be abortive. But veiled as the White Mall, she could pick up Dangler's trail again there. Yes, it would be the end, one way or the other, between eleven o'clock and daylight. She quickened her steps. Old Lurtz would be inveigled away from his home about ten o'clock. At a guess, she made it only a little after nine now. She would need the skeleton keys in order to get into Old Lurtz's place, and yes, she would need a flashlight, too. Well, she would have time enough to get them, time enough, then, to run to the deserted shed in the lane behind the garret and change her clothes. Rhoda Gray, as Gypsy Nan, went on as speedily as she dared without inviting undue attention to herself, reached the garret, secured the articles she sought, hurried out again, and went down the lane in the rear to the deserted shed. She remained longer here than in the attic, perhaps ten minutes, working mostly in darkness, risking the flashlight only when it was imperative, and then, the metamorphosis complete, a veiled figure in her own person as Rhoda Gray, the white mall, she was out in the street again, and hastening back in the same general direction from which she had just come. She knew old Jake Lurtz's place, and she knew the man himself very intimately by reputation. There were few such men, and such places that she could have escaped knowing in the years of self-appointed service that she had given to the worst, and perhaps therefore the most needy element of New York. The man ostensibly conducted a little second-hand store. In reality, he probably shoved more stolen goods for his clientele, which at one time or another undoubtedly embraced every criminal in the underworld, than any other fence in New York. She knew him for an oily, cunning old fox who lived alone, in the two rooms over his miserable store, unless of late his young henchman the crab had taken to living with him. 
though as far as that was concerned, it mattered little to-night, since the crab, for the moment, thanks to the game, was eliminated from consideration. She reached the second-hand store and walked on past it. There was a light upstairs in the front window. Old Lurtz, therefore, had not yet gone out in response to the gang's fake message. She knew Old Lurtz's reputation far too well for that. The man would never go out and leave a gas-jet burning, which he would have to pay for. There was nothing to do but wait. Rhoda Gray sought the shelter of a doorway across the street. She was nervously impatient now. The minutes dragged along. Why didn't the man hurry and go out? About ten o'clock, Dangler had said, but that was very indefinite. Pinky Bond and the Pug might be as late as that, but equally they might be earlier. It seemed an interminable time. And then her eyes strained across the street upon the upper window. She drew still further back into the protecting shadows of the doorway. The light had gone out. A moment more passed. The street door of the house opposite to her, a door separate from that of the second-hand store, opened, and a bent, gray-bearded man stepped out, peered around, locked the door behind him, and shuffled down the street. Rhoda Gray scanned the dingy and ill-lighted little street. It was virtually deserted. She crossed the road and stepped into the doorway from which the old fence had just emerged. It was dark here, well out of the direct radius of the nearest street lamp, and, with luck, there was no reason why she should be observed, if she did not take too long in opening the door. She had never actually used a skeleton key in her life before, and she inserted one of her collection of keys in the lock. It would not work. She tried another, and still another, with mounting anxiety and perplexity. Suppose that, yes, the door was open now. With a quick glance over her shoulder, scanning the street in both directions to make sure that she was not observed, she stepped inside, closed the door, and locked it again. Her flashlight stabbed through the darkness. Narrow stairs immediately in front of her led upward. At her right was a connecting door to the second-hand shop. Without an instant's hesitation she ran up the stairs. There was no need to observe caution, since the place was temporarily untenanted. There was need only of haste. She opened the door at the head of the stairs, and, with a quick eager nod of satisfaction, as the flashlight swept the interior, stepped over the threshold. It was the room she sought, old Lurtz's bedroom. And now the flashlight played inquisitively about her. The bed occupied a position by the window. Across one corner of the room was a cretane hanging that evidently did service as a wardrobe. Across another corner was a large and dilapidated washstand. There were a few chairs and a threadbare carpet, and opposite the bed another door, closed, which obviously led into the front room. Rhoda Gray stepped to this door, opened it, and peered in. She was not concerned that it was evidently used for a kitchen, dining room, and the stowage of everything that overflowed from the bedroom. She was concerned only with the fact that it offered no avenue through which any added risk or danger might reach her. She closed the door as she had found it, and gave her attention now to the walls of old Lurtz's bedroom. She smiled a little whimsically. The crab had used a somewhat dignified term when he had referred to panels. True, the walls were of stained wood, but the wood was of the cheapest variety of matched boards, and the stain was of but a single coat, and a very meager one at that. The smile faded. There were a good many knots, 
and there were four corners in the room, and therefore eight boards, each one of which answered the description of being the sixth panel. She went to the corner nearest her, and dropped down to her knees. As well start with this one. She had not dared press Dangler, or Dangler's deformed brother, for more definite directions, had she? She counted the boards quickly from the corner to her right, and then, the flashlight playing steadily, she began to press first one knot after another, in the board before her, working from the bottom up. There were many knots. She went over each one with infinite care. There was no result. She turned then to the sixth board from the corner to her left. The result was the same. She stood up, her brows puckered, a sense of anxious impatience creeping upon her. She had been quite a while over these two boards, and it might be any one of the remaining six. Her eyes traversed the room, following the ray of the flashlight. If she only knew which one it would, was it an inspiration? Her eyes fixed on the cretane hanging across one of the far corners from the door, and she moved toward it quickly. The hanging might very well serve another purpose than that of merely a wardrobe. It seemed suddenly to be the most likely of the four corners, because it was ingeniously concealed. She parted the hanging. A heterogeneous collection of clothing hung from pegs and nails. Eagerly, hastily now, she brushed these aside, and, close to the wall, dropped to her knees again. The minutes passed. Twice she went over the sixth board from the corner to her right. She felt so sure now that it was this corner and then, still eagerly, she turned to the corresponding board at her left. It was warm and close in here. The clothing hanging from the pegs and nails enveloped her, and with the cretane hanging itself shut out the air, what little of it there was, that circulated through the room. Over the board, from the tiniest knot to the largest, her fingers pressed carefully. Had she missed one anywhere? She must have missed one. She was sure the panel in question was here behind this hanging. Well, she would try again, and—what was that? In an instant the flashlight in her hand was out, and she was listening tensely. Yes, there was a footstep, two of them, not only on the stairs, but already just outside the door. It seemed as though a deadly fear, cold and numbing, settled upon her, and robbed her of even the power of movement. She was caught— if it was Pinky Bond and the pug, and if this corner hid the secret panel as she still believed it did, this was the first place to which they would come, and they would find her amongst the clothing, which had evidently been the cause of deadening any sound on those stairs out there until it was too late. She held her breath, her hands tight upon her bosom. There was no time to reach the sanctuary of the other room. The footsteps were already crossing the threshold from the head of the stairs. And then a voice reached out the pugs. It was the pug and Pinky Bon. Strike a light, Pinky. There's no messin' around with a flash. The old geezer'll be back in a hop the minute he finds out he's been bunked, and the quicker we work the better. A match crackled into flame. An air-choked gas jet with a protesting hiss was lighted. And then Rhoda Gray's drawn face relaxed a little, and a strange, mirthless smile came hovering over her lips. What was she afraid of? The pug was the adventurer, wasn't he? This was one of the occasions when he could not escape the entanglements of the gang, and he must work for the gang instead of appropriating all the loot for his own personal and nefarious ends. But he was the adventurer. 
the white mall need not fear him, even though he appeared, linked with Pinky Bond, in the role of the pug. So there was only Pinky Bond to fear. Rhoda Gray took her revolver from her pocket. She was well armed, and in a more than material sense. The adventurer did not know that she was aware of the pug's identity. Her smile, still mirthless, deepened. She might even turn the tables upon them, and still secure the stolen stones. She had turned the tables upon Pinky Bond last night. Tonight, if she used her wits, she could do it again. And then, suddenly, she stifled an exclamation, as the pug's voice reached her again. "'What are yous gapin' about? There ain't anything else worth pinchin' around here except what's in the old gent's safety vault. Get a move on. We ain't got all night.' It's the corner behind the washstand. Give us a hand to move the furniture. It wasn't behind the cretane hanging. Rhoda Gray bit her lips in a crestfallen little way. Well, her supposition had been natural enough, hadn't it? She would have tried every corner before she was through, if she had had the opportunity. She moved slightly now, without a sound, parting the clothing away from in front of her, and moving the cretane hanging by a fraction of an inch where it touched the side wall of the room. And now she could see the pug, with his dirty and discolored celluloid eye-patch, and his ingeniously contorted face, and she could see Pinky Bond's pasty-white, drug-stamped countenance. It was not a large room. The two men in the opposite corner along the wall from her were scarcely more than ten feet away. They swung the washstand out from the wall, and the pug, going in behind it, began to work on the wallboards. Pinky Bon, an unlighted cigarette dangling from his lips, leaned over the washstand, watching his companion. A minute passed. Another. It was still in the room, except only for the distant sounds of the world outside, a clatter of wheels upon the pavement, the muffled roar of the elevated, the clang of a trolley-bell and then the pug began to mutter to himself. Rhoda Gray smiled a little grimly. She was not the only one, it would appear, who experienced difficulty with old Jake Lurtz's crafty hiding-place. "'Say, dis is the limit,' the pug growled out suddenly. "'There's more damn knots in dis board than I ever saw in any piece of wood in me life before, and—' He drew back abruptly from the wall, twisting his head sharply around. "'D'ye hear dat, Pinky?' he whispered tensely. Quick, put out the light. Quick, there's someone down at the front door. Rhoda Gray felt the blood ebb from her face. She had heard nothing save the rattle and bump of a wagon along the street below, but she had had reason to appreciate on a certain occasion before that the pug, alias the adventurer, was possessed with a sense of hearing that was abnormally acute. If it was someone else, who was it? What would it mean to her? What complication here in this room would result? What? The light went out. Pinky Bond stepped silently across the room to the gas-jet near the door. Her eyes strained. She could just make out the adventurer's form kneeling by the wall. And then, was she mad? Was the faint night lighting of the city filtering in through the window mocking her? The adventurer, hidden from his companion by the washstand, was working swiftly without a sound or else it was a phantasm of shadows that tricked her. The adventurer thrust in his hand, drew out a package, and, leaning around, slipped it quickly into the bottom of the washstand, where with its little doors there was a most convenient and very commodious apartment. He turned again, then, 
seemed to take something from his pocket and placed it in the opening in the wall, and then closed the panel. It had scarcely taken more than a second. Rhoda Gray brushed her hand across her eyes. No, it wasn't a phantasm. She had misjudged the adventurer, quite misjudged him. The adventurer, even with one of the gang present, to furnish an unimpeachable alibi for him, was plucking the gang's fruit again for his own and undivided enrichment. Pinky Bond's voice came in a guarded whisper from the doorway. "'I don't hear nothing,' said Pinky Bond anxiously. The pug tiptoed across the room and joined his companion. She could not see them now, but apparently they stood together by the door listening. They stood there for a long time. Occasionally she heard them whisper to each other, and then finally the pug spoke in a less guarded voice. "'All right,' he said. "'I guess me nerves was getting to creeps. "'Shoot the light on again, and let's get back on de job. "'And yous take a turn dis time pushin' de knots, Pinky. "'Maybe yous'll have better luck.' The light went on again. Both men came back across the room, and now Pinky knelt at the wall while the pug leaned over the washstand, watching him. Pinky Bond was not immediately successful. The pug's nerves, of which he had complained, appeared shortly to get the better of him. "'For God's sake, hurry up,' he urged irritably. "'Or else let me take a crack at it, Pinky, and—' A low, triumphant exclamation came from Pinky Bond as the small door in the wall swung suddenly open. "'There she is, my bucko,' he grinned. "'Some nifty vault, eh?' The old guy—he stopped. He had thrust his hand in and drawn it out again. His fingers gripped a sheet of notepaper, but he was seemingly unconscious of that fact. He was leaning forward, staring into the aperture. "'It's empty,' he choked. "'What's dat?' cried the pug, and sprang to his companion's side. "'Use her crazy, Pinky!' He thrust his head toward the opening, and then turned and stared for a moment helplessly at Pinky Bon. "'So help me,' he said heavily. "'It's—it's it's empty!' He shook his fist suddenly. "'De crab's handed us one, that's what, but de crab'll get his for—' It wasn't the crab. Pinky Bond was stuttering his words. He stood, jaws dropped, his eyes glued on the paper in his hand. The pug, his face working, the personification of baffled rage and intolerance, leered at Pinky Bond. "'Well, what is it, then?' he snarled. Pinky Bond licked his lips. "'The white mall!' He licked his lips again. "'The white mall!' echoed the pug incredulously. "'Yes,' said Pinky Bond. "'Listen to what's on this paper I fished out of there. I listen. "'She's got all the nerve of the devil. "'With thanks and most grateful appreciation, the white mall.' "'The pug snatched the paper from Pinky Bond's hand, "'as though to assure himself that it was true. "'Rhoda Gray smiled faintly. "'It was good acting, very excellently done, "'seeing the pug had written the note "'and placed it in the hiding-place himself.' "'My God!' mumbled Pinky Bond thickly. "'I ain't afraid of most things, but I'm getting scared of her. "'She ain't human. "'Last night you know what happened, and the night before, and—' "'He gulped suddenly. "'Let's get out of here,' he said hurriedly. "'The pug made no reply, except for a muttered growl of assent and a nod of his head. "'The two men crossed the room. "'The light went out. "'Their footsteps echoed as they descended the stairs, then died away.' and then Rhoda Gray moved for the first time. She brushed aside the cretan hanging, 
ran to the washstand, possessed herself of the package she had seen the pug place there, and made her way, cautious now of the slightest sound, downstairs. She tried the door that led into the second-hand shop from the hall, found it unlocked, and with a little gasp of relief slipped through, and closed the door gently behind her. She did not dare risk the front entrance. Pinky Bon and the pug were not far enough away yet, and she did not dare wait until they were. Too bulky to take the risk of attempting to conceal it about his person, while with Pinky Bon, the pug, it was obvious, would come back alone for that package, and it was equally obvious that he would not be longed in doing so. There was old Lurtz's return that he would have to anticipate. It would not take wits nearly so sharp as those possessed by the pug to find an excuse for separating promptly from Pinky Bon. Rhoda Gray groped her way down the shop, groped her way to the back door, unbolted it, working by the sense of touch, and let herself out into the back yard. Five minutes later she was blocks away, and hurrying rapidly back toward the deserted shed in the lane behind Gypsy Nan's garret. Her lips formed into a tight little curve as she went along. There was still work to do tonight, if this package really contained the stolen legacy of gems left by Angel Jack. She had first of all to reach the place where she could examine the package with safety, then a place to hide it where it would be secure, and then Dangler. She gained the lane, stole along it, and disappeared into the shed through the broken door that hung partially open on sagging hinges. Here she sought a corner, and crouched down so that her body would smother any reflection from her flashlight. And now, eagerly, feverishly, she began to undo the package, and then, a moment later, she gazed, stupefied and amazed, at what lay before her. Precious stones, scores of them, nestled on a bed of cotton. They were of all colors and of all sizes, but each one of them seemed to pulsate and throb, and from some wondrous, glorious depth of its own seemed to fling back the white ray upon a thousand rays in return, as though into it had been breathed a living and immortal fire. And Rhoda Gray crouched there, stared, until suddenly she grew afraid, and suddenly, with a shudder, she wrapped the package up again. These were the stones for whose fabulous worth the woman whose personality she, Rhoda Gray, had usurped, had murdered a man. These were the stones which were indirectly the instrumentality since but for them gypsy nan would never have existed that made her rhoda gray to-night now at this very moment a hunted thing homeless friendless fighting for her life against police and underworld alike she rose abruptly to her feet she had no longer any need of the flashlight there was even light of a sort in the place she could see the stars through the jagged holes in the roof and through one of these too the moonlight streamed in the shed was all but crumbling in a heap. Underfoot, what had once been flooring, was now but rotting, broken boards. Under one of these, beside the clothing of Gypsy Nan, which she had discarded a little while before, she deposited the package, and then she stepped out into the lane, and from there to the street again. And now she became suddenly conscious of a great and almost overpowering physical weariness, she did not quite understand at first, unless it was to be attributed to the reaction from the last few hours, and then, smiling wanly at herself, she remembered. For two nights she had not slept. It seemed very strange. That was it, of course. Though she was not in the least sleepy now, just tired, just near the breaking point. 
but she must go on. Tonight was the end, anyhow. Tonight, failing to keep her appointment as Bertha, the crash must come, but before it came as the white mall, armed with the knowledge of the crime that had driven Dangler's wife into hiding, and which was Dangler's crime too, and with the evidence in the shape of those jewels in her possession, she and Dangler would meet somewhere. Alone. Before the law got him, when he would be closed-mouthed and struggling with all his cunning to keep the evidence of other crimes from piling up against him, and damning whatever meager chances he might have to escape the penalty for Deemer's murder, she meant, yes, even if she pretended to compound a felony with him, to force, or to inveigle from him, it mattered little which, a confession of the authorship and details of the scheme to rob Skarbolov that night when she, Rhoda Gray, in answer to a dying woman's pleading, had tried to forestall the plan, and had been caught, apparently, in the act of committing the robbery herself. With that confession in her possession, with the identity of the unknown woman who had died in the hospital that night established, her own story would be believed. And so, if she were weary, what did it matter? It was only until morning. Dangler was at the Silver Sphinx now, with the man he meant that she should help him murder, only, only that would fail, because there would be no Bertha to lure the man to his death, and she, Rhoda Gray, had only to keep track of Dangler until somewhere, where he lived, perhaps, she should have that final scene, that final reckoning with him alone. It was a long way to the Silver Sphinx, which she knew, as everyone in the underworld, and everyone in New York who was addicted to slumming knew, was a combination dance-hall and restaurant in the Chatham Square district. She tried to find a taxi, but without avail. A clock in a jeweler's window which she passed showed her the time was ten minutes after eleven. She had had no idea that it was so late. At eleven, Dangler had said. Dangler would be growing restive. She took the elevated. If she could risk the protection of her veil in the Silver Sphinx, she could risk it equally in an elevated train. But, in spite of the elevated, it was, she knew, well on towards half-past eleven, when she finally came down the street in front of the Silver Sphinx. From under the veil she glanced half-curiously, half in a sort of grim irony, at the taxis lined up before the dance-hall. The two leading cars were not taxis at all, though they bore the earmarks, with their registers, of being public vehicles for hire. They were large, roomy, powerful, and looked with their hoods up like privately owned motors. Well, it was of little account. She shrugged her shoulders as she mounted the steps to the dance-hall. Neither Bertha nor Clorin would use those cars to-night. All right, so now we know what Gypsy Nan did so that she had to stay in hiding. And I have to say, since the White Mall took Gypsy Nan's identity, I'd kind of forgotten about the original person and that she said she had to stay in hiding or she'd go to jail. Or gosh, I, you know, maybe the death sentence, I don't know. But you forget that she was pretty despicable. And she was married to Dangler, and she did not mind him. You know, from the way he acted, you can tell. It kind of jerks us back into reality a little bit about the harshness of the world that Rhoda Gray is living in right now. I want to know, also, how is she going to pull this off at the Silver Sphinx? 
She's going to go in. She's supposed to be Bertha. I don't feel like a veil could cut it. Maybe it can. Also, I want to know who this person is that Dangler's showing her to. Also, I think of poor Rhoda Gray, who had to stay awake two nights in a row because she was so terrified that Dangler was going to show up and want his husbandly privileges. My goodness, she's been living under a lot of nervous tension lately. I don't know how she can hold it together. And now we're left with the big scene to come, going to the Silver Sphinx. In other White Mall news, yes, yes, there's other White Mall news. <laughs> Kathy Sharp left a comment at the blog saying that the White Mall is a lost 1920 American silent film feature and it starred Pearl White. Now, I've heard of Pearl White, but I don't really know anything about her except that she was famous. So I'm looking at the Wikipedia page and it says, oh my goodness, she started her stage career at the age of six. She was born in 1889. And then she went on to silent films and she was known as the queen of the serials. And oh, this is why I've heard of her. She did <laughs> most of her own stunts in these serials and the most notable of which was the perils of Pauline. And isn't it funny how something that's as old as that is still a cultural icon to where I can say it, and I would bet that most of you have at least heard of the name. I would caution you not to click through and look at the Wikipedia stub for the film of the White Mall. There's really not anything more there than I said, except for the rest of the cast, and in giving the credits, it gives away a few things about the plot. So I would just let that go for a little while. Now that is all my White Mall news. In other podcast news, I did want to mention that the Classic Tales podcast has begun The War of the Worlds. This is one of my all-time favorite books. I don't know why. It just grabbed me. So if you haven't heard it before, B.J. Harrison is a wonderful way to start. So that's free. Just look for the Classic Tales podcast. And then Mythgard Academy, which I re-highlighted recently with Corey Olson, has just begun talking about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. This is a book that I read, gosh, maybe five years ago. And, you know, it was really well-known. Everybody read it. And then recently, it's been a miniseries, maybe a BBC short series. So I was going to watch it, but I hadn't got around to that yet. Anyway, I've been thinking about rereading the book recently. You know, sometimes those big books you read, are much better when you reread them because you know what's going on and you can think about the details more. So this has made me really want to do that. I think I'm going to start listening so I can keep up with their lessons. I've listened to the first one and their observations are so good that I can't resist. <laughs> now, when I read it, I listened to the audiobook, which is read by Simon Preble and he is just fantastic. So if you're having trouble with the reading of it, you might want to give the audiobook a try. This book has a ton of very involved footnotes that will tell other stories that branch off from the main story, but they manage it really well in the audio. So don't worry about that. Just go enjoy it. I did want to mention that although the Classic Tales podcast and Craftlit and some other podcasts have their own app, which makes it super easy. 
It is not difficult to listen to forgotten classics or for that matter, anything that's on iTunes as a podcast, as an app. iTunes has an app and I tested it out with my husband's phone, his iPod, his iPad, various things like that. The iTunes app will bring in forgotten classics or any podcasts. The Android app also will bring in forgotten classics. And there's an app that a lot of editors like that seems to cover any kind of format, and that's called Pocket Cast, and it costs all of $4. That's not very much. So I don't have to have my own app. You can just use those apps, and they should work okay. Now, listening to older episodes, those aren't all up on the in iTunes. And I do have in the sidebar how you can download those. And those can go onto anything that you can hook up to your computer. And that is your phone, your iPad, your iPod, all those kind of things. All this is in the sidebar. I did want to mention it though. And I guess in other news, we did go to Houston and it actually was quite a lot of fun. I haven't done a road trip in so long and we listened to all except for an hour of The Thin Man. Wow, that is a hilarious book. And I just want to say, no human being could possibly drink the way this guy does. That's what you see in all the reviews. <laughs> However, it's funny for many other reasons, and I highly recommend it. Okay, that's it. That's all I've got. Probably way more than enough. So thank you for coming by. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.